So we start today with a conversation with Krishna Srinivasan, founding general partner of Live Oak Venture Partners. Welcome, Krishna. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. So, Krishna, let's first get our audience acquainted with yourself as well as with Live Oak. Tell us about the fund. Tell us about, a bit about your background. What do you like to invest in, and, and how do you think about uh, your portfolio? Absolutely. Um, my let me start with my background. I uh, grew up in India, uh, undergrad degree from one of the IITs, and then uh, came to the United States to get a master's from the University of Texas in Austin, and then uh, worked in industry at Motorola in the mid '90s. And following that, went to business school at Wharton and uh, started in the venture industry uh, in, in the year 2000, right at the beginning of 2000, yeah. called it, uh, at the NASDAQ 5000. Um, joined the industry at a firm called Austin Ventures, yeah. which uh, at the time, one of the um, uh, well-respected firms, which uh, here in Austin, uh, joined Austin Ventures and spent a decade there, uh, learning the business and made partner uh, around the 2005 timeframe. And then uh, earlier part of this decade, came out of Austin Ventures with two of my colleagues from there and started Live Oak Venture Partners um, here in Austin. Um, and how so we big have, is Live Oak? What's the size of the fund? Uh, so we're investing on about, uh, the first fund was $105 million. Uh, the second fund, we are in the quiet period. We are uh, just wrapping up in the final stages of wrapping up the fund. So we're not at a liberty to disclose the exact size of the fund at this time. Okay. Uh, but safe to say it's something comparable to uh, yeah. live oak uh, fund, uh, fund one fund size. And talk a little bit about what you like to invest in. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we talk, we, we segment our investing strategy can be summarized in four buckets. First, we are, um, as, as a traditional early-stage investor, uh, as you know, early-stage investing ends up being much more of a local neighborhood sport. So with that as context, our investing strategy, uh, we can talk about them in terms of uh, four buckets. Number one, um, our companies are predominantly headquartered in the state of Texas, close to us. Number two, uh, they're all in... Uh, technology, and technical services. Mm -hmm. For these companies, um, third element of our strategy is we are first institutional money uh, uh, in, in these companies. They might have raised some seed rounds before, friends and family rounds before, uh, or we might be the seed investor too, but we have first institutional money for these companies. First check could be as little as half a million dollars to as much as $4 million. More mm -hmm. typically, it's between one and a half and three for a first check. And then mm -hmm. we invest the whole life cycle of the company up to $10 million of the life of the company. And the fourth element of strategies in all these investments, we typically take board seats in them and we play the role of local lead investor, lead board members in the companies that we invest. And when you, can you double click down on stage? Uh, you know, early stage has gone through an evolution since you got into the business in 2000, right? I was, you know, I raised money for my startups all through the 90s, you know, mid 90s till 2000. 
Um, and that was a different game. It was seed and, and series A. Nowadays, we are looking at pre-seed, seed, post-seed, pre-series A, small series A, large series A. There's a whole, you know, whole segmentation that has gone on in, in uh, just in seed. How do you uh, how do you fit in that spectrum of segmentation? See the. Um... Not only has that evolved from a time dimension, it has evolved from a geography dimension. You know, Silicon yes. Valley is its own planet where these things have a different connotation as to what it is, seed versus pre-seed, et cetera. Uh, so for the rest of the world, for the rest of the normal world here, uh, which Austin is very much part of that, uh, you know, activity is in general exploding. We can talk about the local market later. Um, for us, the typical companies we invest in, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to put them into a firm bucket. You know, for, let's say, a completely unproven, first-time entrepreneur, the typical stage we get in, they've got some level of early traction. Mm -hmm. uh, they might have you know, 30, 40K of uh, monthly revenues, but some evidence of something about, some evidence of product market fit typically yeah. exists when we come into them, and we might call it a seed investment. It might be a one and a half to $2 million investment at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, in other instances, there is a, let's say, a successful repeat entrepreneur who's coming in with a simply an idea where we might even be part of company formation with them. In those mm -hmm. instances, we might take even earlier stage risk and uh, you know, help in the company formation itself, but that might even be a two to three million dollar investment in that into, into that company because that uh, individual has got such an incredible track record of uh, success and execution. Yeah. Um, so it's it's more a function of um, when we typically invest that one and a half to three million dollars, how do we feel about the company's ability to absorb that capital and do something meaningful with it? Or are we still in the stage of trying to um, figure out what product, what market it needs to be? You're more forgiving and you somehow believe that somebody who's been there, done that, can uh, absorb the capital sure. and do something effective with it. Uh, and so for us, we are, you know, I, I would say comparable to Silicon Valley, we are, I would say we are a seed investor. Uh, but yeah. some of our companies could be called Series A's or seeds when we make our investments in them. And, and it's interesting what you're pointing out about repeat entrepreneurs versus first-time entrepreneurs. Um, the vast majority of our community, of course, is first-time entrepreneurs. Um, and, and I always say this, that if you are a repeat entrepreneur with track record, you can get away with a lot. You can do a fast startup with somebody writing you a check. There are lots right. of options, lots of permutations and combinations. But as a first-time entrepreneur, none of those doors are open for you. So you're going to have to do it the hard way. You have to do it the, you know, you have to bootstrap to product market fit of some level and, and, right. and so on and so forth. So you're, what you're saying is absolutely what we see as well. Now, um, what about B2B, B2C? Is there, are you doing both? One, it's obviously you're doing B2B since you mentioned SaaS. Right. So, you know, being um, geographically focused, we end up being somewhat more segment agnostic, uh, in, in, but, but very geographically specific is what we do. So the companies we end up investing in 
are companies where there ends up being world-class talent available in this market. And the talent here in this market ends up being, you know, uh, well, it's pretty broad, but the concentration of world-class talent here ends up being either in infrastructure software, there's a long history of innovation going back to when Tivoli got started here and IBM became IBM's uh, software business. Uh, and there's a lot of amazing infrastructure software companies here in town, or there is a lot of uh, vertically oriented or industry specific software and technology enabled services. Uh, it's mm -hmm. huge just because Texas has got you know 50 plus uh, Fortune 500 headquartered companies. So there's a tremendous number of uh, industries here that have uh, historically underinvested in talent in these companies, in technology in these places. So we end up coming across a lot of vertically oriented um, software or vertically oriented tech-enabled services here. So mm -hmm. that ends up being the bulk of activity that we end up, uh, and, and, and bulk of companies we end up backing. And how is the geographical distribution within Texas? So between Austin and Dallas and San Antonio, El Paso, where, where is the, how, how do you see the companies coming out? Are, are they also coming out in other places than Austin and Dallas? Well, I would say Austin definitely is the strongest of the markets. Yeah. Uh, it's one where uh, it's, it's a, you know, we, we especially you see a big surge of migration from California and other yes. parts of the country Indeed. to Austin these Indeed. days. Yeah. Um, and so we see probably, I would say, two-thirds of the activity here in Austin. I would say Dallas and Houston are following that, and San Antonio is probably number four on the list in terms of mm -hmm. activity. Uh, but, but that's you know, about we it. definitely see activity all over the state, uh, at least in these four big metros. Okay. So um, talk to us about some of the highlights in your portfolio. And, and as you were telling us some of these stories, um, give us some insight into what was going on when you saw these companies first. What is it about them that attracted you? What we try to do is give our audience a bit of an insight into how you think about investments. Sure. You know, um, um, uh, so we, we've got, uh, today we have uh, 23 investments in the fund, a couple of them are still seed states, I would say 21 companies which are Series A and beyond in the portfolio, between fund one and fund two. We've done three investments in the, in the new fund so far. Um, and I would, the, the ones I would highlight to you at all fall in this category of something industry specific meets, mm -hmm. uh, meets technology. And interestingly, going back to the, some of the comments you made, those are in fact, uh, many of them have first-time entrepreneurs. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and we, are, we are absolutely, I would say half the portfolio consists of first-time entrepreneurs, but these first-time entrepreneurs typically are leveraging their domain expertise in some form or fashion. Yeah. They come out of those industries, they have an acute understanding of the challenges and problems in those industries, and are able to parlay that insight, pair up with, uh, they might have been technologists also themselves, or pair up with technology technologists in order to be able to go tackle those uh, gnarly problems. And so are able to get to product market fit earlier because they have an industry Rolodex. Uh, so that's yeah. a fairly common pattern across the portfolio. And so we've got companies in legal meets technology, we've got a Three companies in healthcare meets technology. We got a couple in uh, real estate meets technology, etc. People again with uh, a keen understanding of uh, problems, emerging problems in those industries, and how do you go tackle 
those emerging problems in a very capital-efficient fashion by parlaying industry insight, industry loaded access to go do that. So I would definitely urge entrepreneurs who are embarking on something to go back to their strengths to be able to do that, and that's been a significant uh, correlation between uh, success in establishing rapid product market fit in the ones that we've invested in. Okay. Uh, I'm happy to give you at least an example. You know, to give you uh, uh, one example, uh, one of the most exciting companies still in the portfolio is a company called CS Disco. Uh, it's a company that makes software for e-discovery. Uh, it's the complex uh, problem of taking all the documents that come in, and uh, uh, this is a mission-critical platform in which corporations, law firms, their outsourced managed services all collaborate on this platform through the life cycle of a case. The uh, company was started by uh, the youngest ever graduate from Harvard Law. Uh, came out of Harvard Law at the age of 19 uh, with an undergrad in, uh, in a computer science from before. Um, practiced law, practiced as a litigator after teaching at Northwestern at 21. And then while practicing as a litigator, discovered how terrible the software stack was to be able to practice his trade. And uh, hired guys within his law firm, rewrote the software stack with, with numerous open source technology elements uh, using Amazon, you know, cloud infrastructure, and uh, was able to be, uh, again, leverage his domain deeply to build an incredible product that had stunning reception, even when he was in his law firm, he could sell the product to other people. So we, he came, reached out to us with the story, uh, wicked smart guy, domain-led uh, product. Uh, we are very yep. product-heavy in the way we do go about investing, uh, domain-rich in the way he's gone about it. Uh, and we, in fact, formed the company and spun it all out. And he left his law firm to be a founder, um, CEO of his business. And Disco has simply exploded. You know, today, uh, over 60 uh, AM law, 200 law firms use the product. Um, you know, we've got hundreds of major enterprises using it. Uh, it is today the leading cloud-based e-discovery platform uh, and uh, you know, on its way to being a really substantial company today. Uh, and, and, and I'm still on the board of the company, and it's, we've, got, we've got phenomenal expectations for that company coming out. And how did this uh, entrepreneur find you, or how did you find him? No, you know, again, it's the old uh, myth of this business, right, which is um, – you need uh, a strong recommendation to be able to get to a venture firm. He just cold emailed us with his uh, backstory, and we we read all our emails, I, I guess. And in fact, people can <laughs> reach out to us at plans at liveoakvp.com. Um, but um, so he reached out to us, and it was a cold email that we jumped all over it and uh, brought him in, introduced him to a few law firms ourselves. Two of them became customers during diligence and we knew we were onto something special. So yeah. I would tell entrepreneurs that uh, no proxy for, you know, getting, figuring out if he was able to demonstrate he had some early product market fit. He could yeah. uh, hang his hat onto his uh, domain-infused product innovation, uh, and uh, he was, uh, he had all the many other great attributes. He was authentic, he was very self-actualized about what he knew, what he did not know. Um, and he had all the right traits of being an entrepreneur. We were the light to back and build a great company around. You know, what you said about, um, you know, cold emails versus introductions, um, 
I actually think that entrepreneurs should be able to call the email VCs because it's a, especially if you've got something going already and if you have some traction, you should be able to basically contact whomever you think would be the best investor for your business and and those investors should look at it. So I think it's your your point is very well taken that those who are not accepting cold uh, inter- cold emails are probably losing out on a, on a certain type of deal flow where especially these kinds of people who have domain knowledge somewhere quite outside of the technology right. industry and is coming into the technology industry with often with no Rolodex at all. How are they going to get to the investors otherwise? And that's exactly. part of the reason why, why we're doing One Million by One Million is to bridge that access gap. And, and we introduce yeah. uh, people to investors left, right, and center because, uh, you know, that's what we see all the time is invest, uh, entrepreneurs don't have that access. But, but I think as, a, as an industry phenomenon, your point is very well taken that I think uh, in not accepting some of these approaches, I think there's a there's a danger that you're losing a lot. But at the same time, you know, if people get so many emails, right? Investors get so many emails. Yeah, and that's why there's no substitute for having some impressive execution. You know, people who have managed to bootstrap their way or minimal investment to get to early evidence of traction. Yeah. And traction speaks for itself. It'll it'll stand out an email as opposed to, oh, yeah, I'm just thinking of an idea. Uh, you know, maybe uh, the people you all work with, if they can figure out a way to cut through the, all the challenges to get some early traction established, that yeah. speaks speak for itself. Yes, and our philosophy completely is bootstrap first, raise money later, and and exactly. that's in response to what the how the industry behaves. The industry likes right. product market fit. That's the bottom line. Yeah. Um, now, what? Uh, it's a slightly different question. Um, you must be seeing thousands of deals a year. If you look at the last 18 months of your deal flow, what trends are you seeing? What's standing out as what's happening in your geography and in your deal flow? Yeah, it's very consistent, you know, in the sense that, um, you know, we, we, we struggle with completely broad horizontal ideas mm-hmm. uh, just because, you know, obviously there are lots and lots and lots of people thinking about broad horizontal ideas um, and so on. So I think uh, a richness of verticalization industry expertise, we've seen a lot of amazing companies coming out to go tackle specific problems of retail, specific problems of healthcare. Uh, and, and the big question is, can they be big enough niches or not? Um, so we, what we look for in those instances is, uh, maybe the first problem is a nice beachhead to get started with, but can this entrepreneur dream about a second act here, which then they can parlay their early success into doing something more substantial uh, on an ongoing basis? The, the early foothold they have into the market can then lead into uh, a, a, a larger play further downstream. Uh, that way they don't have to start off by dreaming off this incredibly large horizontal play with a giant opportunity, mm-hmm. but make it a one-two punch to go from a first play to something much bigger. I think that's yeah. a common uh, entrepreneurs here are getting savvier about thinking about that. How do you get to a first beachhead? And how do you then, you know, maybe it's a B2B2C play where you go and crack into a B2B angle here initially, 
and use that relationship, that network to go and build a B2C opportunity subsequent to that. Uh, yeah. That way you go from a first dependable, repeatable, predictable source of revenue from a B2B play, and you build a network out of that and then go to an interesting marketplace or a transactional model to consumers subsequently. I think that's mm-hmm. a, definitely a common theme we are seeing, especially in somewhat more capital-constrained markets like in Austin, uh, where there's plenty of ideas, plenty of high-quality ideas coming through. So industry meets B2B2C is definitely popular. Um, we continue to see a steady stream of uh, exciting innovation in the infrastructure software space. Maybe we might see, uh, say, blockchainizing enterprise. What are the challenges associated with that? Maybe mm-hmm. you know everything from compliance, AML, to um, how do you manage distributed apps and how do you take traditional enterprise expertise to go tackle those kinds of problems? Um, what are security implications for things like that? So we are seeing a variety of different evolution of uh, infrastructure, software type of plays across the spectrum. I would say those mm-hmm. would be the two broad areas, which again, leverages what a tremendous strength of this market, uh, coupled with uh, the, the, the infusion of technology to go tackle these things. And the infrastructure uh, deal flow, would you credit that to the presence of IBM and Tivoli and all that? That's, it seems like probably there are a lot of entrepreneurs who grew up through those systems, yeah? Right. That's an ecosystem about now almost you know, 25 years old. Tivoli got started in the 90s. So yeah, but began... Redify came out of that and, and all that, right? True, true, true. That began a lot of other interesting companies out of that, right? And so you yeah. got you know, Solar Winds and Town, which went public. You got SailPoint that went public here. Uh, you got a lot of companies of that ilk here, and a lot of, uh, uh, you know, Cisco's got a big presence. You just got a lot of, you know, IBM, of course, yeah. just have a big presence. A lot of big companies, a lot of exciting startups that have come out of that. We got an exciting company called NSS Labs, which is the uh, the standard for cyber security. Um, you know, call, they almost call it consumer reports meet cybersecurity in some sense. Uh, mm-hmm. Here in the portfolio, uh, just drawing up, up on um, a good talent that comes out of, say, Symantec here in town, Blue Court in town. So lots mm-hmm. of good talent in cyber infrastructure, software, computer networking, and of course, Dell's got a giant presence with a big enterprise presence here in this market. So those would be some of the areas where we continue to have a lot of talent. And um, what are your thoughts and the geography's thought about unicorns? Of course, in Silicon Valley, most VCs are chasing unicorns. How do you think about it? You know, I think we, if we, you know, end up with a unicorn, which are, of course, not as rare as they used to be, it's wonderful. But I think, you know, we balance uh, the combination of as opposed to pursuing a badge called unicorn, I think we balance um, capital efficiency with uh, getting to exciting outcomes. And if the company has to raise $300 million to get to a billion dollar valuation, um, you know, that's got implications for earlier stage investors, the founders yeah. themselves. Um, there might be a structured return that's built into it to make it attractive for people to come in at a unicorn valuation. I think, you know, if, if you can get, be in an instance where companies are capital efficient, let's say you can, they raise 20 to $40 million, let's say, and they can get to a $250 million outcome, um, people might do even much better 
Um, yes, in that exactly. Compared to being in a unicorn status, as opposed to pursuing that as a badge. So what we look for fundamentally are businesses that can, you know, where we invest in them are sub million dollar run rate businesses, but can they get to be say a fifty million dollars plus in revenues in five to seven years? Get to that. Uh, if, if, with some prudent um, uh, investment, not not go crazy, and you can always buy your way to big revenues. Can you mm-hmm. grow in a capital efficient fashion to get to that sort of revenue scale where you raise something less than fifty million dollars, maybe it's you know thirty to forty or fifty, maybe, but get to that kind of scale over that period? Uh, you know, good things naturally happen to those companies. You know, those companies can continue to grow. Yeah. Be unicorns, those companies can be even acquired at two fifty three million dollars and um, you know you can build a phenomenal venture portfolio and 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 founders can be you know phenomenally wealthy doing that is what's possible of course if things continue to break out and they attract uh, oodles of outside capital at rich but don't have to depend or bet on that phenomena to go build an amazing venture portfolio is what we think about yeah, and and I think your fund size is is at the right size to do all that. If your right. fund size is too large, then you then you don't have the luxury of doing what you're talking exactly. about. And I I actually exactly. think that uh, your fund size is is a better suited is much better suited to venture investing than right. these like billion dollar funds that try to do venture investing. Okay, well, last question. Do you have companies in your 30 portfolio companies? Do you have companies that are, um, uh, you know, above, let's say, $5 million? And those we would like to actually cover in our, you probably know our blog, we've covered these entrepreneur journey stories and thought leadership stories and so forth. So send them to us and and we will, uh, you know, do those very deep case study based stories on them. That'd be great. You know, there are a whole bunch of them. You know, like for somebody who might uh, uh, think about it, you know, CS Disco is a great story. There's yeah. something called Ojo Labs. That's a great story. An AI-based chat for real estate. The digital pharmacist um, are all. And we just recently sold an amazing company called Opsity to News Corp, which went from two years from a seed stage investment of ours to being a material double-digit revenue business, and we sold it to News Corp for $210 million mm-hmm. last month. So there are a lot of amazing stories like that. Happy to uh, connect yeah. uh, you or Maureen to any of those to do profiles on them. Great. We have a colleague called Sheldon who will follow up on this. That's perfect. All right. Well, Krishna, that was splendid, and we got a great view into what's happening in Texas. I, uh, you know, My first summer job was in Texas at Texas Instruments in Dallas in 1990, so I know Got the it. area well. Um, thank you for coming. Things have changed and, a bit uh, since then. What was that? Things have changed a bit since then. I'm sure, yes, I'm <laughs> sure. Yes. <laughs> well, nice to meet you, Krishna, and we'll keep in touch and, and uh, cover more of your companies. That sounds good. Really enjoyed it, Shramana. Thank you very much for the opportunity.